Peace out, Brother Ron. Okay, welcome everybody. Uh, it's June 3rd, uh, 2018. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. And if you haven't been with us before, we begin with a word of prayer. We sing the Word of God, set to music. We sit in silence for a couple minutes, and, uh, and then we move on into our verse by verse. I want to welcome everybody who's here in the uh, gathering studio, and then of course those who watch from home. Um, we have Michael and his family there in Sweden. We have another Michael in the British Isles who's getting a group together under campus. And then there's other people all around who want to forget you, people here in Utah who don't want to get out of bed and come here. So they're sitting there in their uh, robes watching. So let's begin with a prayer. Lord, we uh, pause during our lives and we uh, seek you and ask you to be with us in spirit and in truth. Uh, we ask you that the result of your presence in our lives will be freedom and will be uh, the liberty to walk through life and love people as they are, where they are, and to, uh, to not have prejudice and bias, but to just see them as your creations, to love them as you love them. And um, we gather together to learn uh, the contextual study of your word so that we can take principles from it and not become dogmatists and legalists and scribes using it to hurt other people, but to learn principles that are taught through the scripture that we can apply to our own lives. So we just pray that you'll be with anybody who's seeking, that you'll uh, open their eyes and ears and heart, that you can come in and heal them. And people who are having difficulty in their lives with, uh, with this stuff, that things will become apparent to them as they consider your word. So we pray for this now in Jesus' name. Amen.
For you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Show me your ways, O oh Lord. Teach me your path. Lead me in your truth. Okay, you ever had one of those weeks? I've had one of those weeks, so excuse this. <laughs> and stay away from me, I have a cold. All right, so far Paul's letter to the church at Corinth has really gone to some depths. He's a living apostle at that time, perfectly chosen by Christ to lead the church gives his life for it, gives his life for his witness of the resurrection, and he's helping to instruct the churches in that day and age. He's addressed marriage. He's addressed uh, marriages that are, not, are inner faith, someone not of the faith, someone with the faith. What do you want me to do? Fix it? Um, and now he's going to start talking about our uh, Christian's relationship to idols. And we remember that idolatry was ubiquitous in the uh, ancient world, especially among the Greeks. They worshipped idols ad nauseum. Here in Corinth, we have the Temple of Diana, and we've talked all about how idol worship was prevalent there in, um, in, uh, with their temple prostitutes and selling their little icons everywhere. And uh, where there are idols, there are sacrifices to idols. And the, sometimes those sacrifices were edible and uh, could be consumed later by people. We'll talk about that, including Christians. So there comes a problem. Food is really, really important. Food's important, obviously, uh, to all of us, but it was really important because it was scarce in things in that day. So when you had tables that were selling meat and that meat had been sacrificed to idols or offered up to idols, there was a big division as to whether you could eat that meat or not as a Christian. And so here in chapter 8, Paul says, Now, as touching things offered unto idols, we know we all have knowledge. 
Knowledge puffs up, but charity edifies. If any man thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. That's a really interesting line. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in this world, and that there is none other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. So go back to verse 1. We're going to cover those first six verses, and let's talk about what they mean in context. Paul enters into a new subject, idols now. I've talked to you about marriage. I've talked to you about divorce. I've talked to you about uh, fornication. I've talked to you about all these things. And now, as touching things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but charity edifies. That is such an important line uh, in the faith. Knowledge makes us proud, but love edifies, exhorts, encourages. Uh, you get around people who are really, really smart on certain topics, and that can make them proud. And so they think that they have the right to perhaps treat other people without love. And so touching this topic of idols and what you can eat, Paul says, knowledge makes us proud. We all know, we have knowledge of this situation. Knowledge makes us proud, but charity uh, edifies. So the question at hand, is it okay for Christians to partake of the meat that had been offered in sacrifice to an idol? The answer to this specific question is probably difficult for us in application to our day uh, directly. We'll talk about that in a minute. In any case, getting back to them that there at that time, there would certainly be a conversation going on in the Christian church. Pretend we're in Corinth. We've gathered together on a Sunday to study and talk and eat. And of course, there is going to be a conversation about can you eat the meat that is offered to idols? When those sacrifices were made to heathen gods, a part of the animal was given to the priest that officiated. So somebody would come in and say, I want to offer up uh, to this god, Mercury. Here is part of the animal for, uh, to the god. Here is part of the animal to the priest who was officiating that. And part was consumed on the altar and part was kept by him who offered it. So they didn't take a whole cow and, and give the whole cow to the idol and none to the priest and keep none for themselves. They split it up. So this, was part, this part that was kept back was either eaten by him at his home or her home um, as food, as in a sense that it had been consecrated to the idol and so there was benefits to it to their family. Uh, or it was partaken of in a feast for the idol. We're going to have a big party this uh, Friday uh, in honor of Jupiter. Uh, bring your excess meat that you have offered to Jupiter during the past month, and we'll consume it probably the past week because they didn't have refrigeration. Or in some instances, they would take it and sell, sell it in the open market. 
And this is what Paul is probably talking about. Either is it okay for a Christian to buy meat that was sacrificed to an idol in the market, or is it permissible for a Christian to be invited by a heathen friend over to their home for a barbecue and to chomp down on meat that was once offered to the idol? That is the big question. So he's addressing whether it would be right. Is it okay? To a Jew, remember most of the early church were converts from Judaism. It would be anathema, forbidden, to touch meat that was offered to an idol. So you know that the converts to Christ who were Jews are bringing with them the baggage. No way can you touch that still. We're a Christian. Everything's been fulfilled in Christ. Nevertheless, we've been under the law for 1,500 years. We don't touch anything related to idols. So they carry with them that stigma. Sort of like uh, here at campus when we've done communion, we offer actual wine. And uh, there, there are people who are or have been LDS, maybe people who aren't even LDS anymore and haven't been for 20 years, who won't drink wine. They'll take the grape juice side. Simply because that's the culture they grew up in. And, and so a Jew coming into Christianity in Paul's day was going to be, no way are we going to touch idol meat. And probably among the Gentile converts, people who had come from paganism or people who had come from no religion, it was no big deal at all to eat idol meat. So in the church there at Corinth, we have Gentile converts who are like, eat up. And we have Jews who are saying, no way. And so we have division. And the Paul's job as an apostle was to keep that church together in Corinth, in Ephesus, in Galatia, all those places, keep them together until Christ came back and took the church. That was his job. And that's why there was only 12 of them. And that's why they died out and no more were repeated. They were to keep that church, which the gates of hell would not prevail against, keep it together. And so anything that was going to cause insurrection interfaith marriage, divorces, eating idol meat, whatever it was, his job was to quell that. So from the words of Paul, the converted Gentiles probably had the right understanding of the subject. Paul says, listen, as touching things offered to idols concerning the topic, we know we have all knowledge. We understand the subject readily. The Jews understand it from the law. The Jews have experience with it, with the heathen nations and idolatry. The Gentiles understand it from where they've come from. We have all knowledge. We can sit and debate whether you can eat the meat. All knowledge is present in the subject of, of eating this. Hashed and rehashed. But then Paul adds, in connection to the knowledge that everyone has on the subject, he says, but knowledge puffs up. Charity edifies. Now you think about that. Let's say that, let's just use our example of wine here for communion. Let's say half of us are former LDS. We'll take that. And half of us are never, we're never LDS. And let's say we're doing communion and we have wine on one side and we have uh, grape juice on another side. And the grape juice drinkers are attacking the wine drinkers because there's alcohol in it. And the alcohol drinkers are mocking the grape juice drinkers because they're saying, why don't you drink the real thing? It's really emblematic of Christ's blood, which is what he drank. And there's an infight within. It's the same thing. We could do it easily. People tried it. People do it over everything. 
And Paul is trying to say, look it, we all have knowledge of the subject. We get all the arguments about whether it's grape juice or wine and what the benefits are, what the detriments are, and what happens to an alcoholic if they've been on the wagon for 10 years and drink some alcohol, or what happens to a diabetic who drinks grape juice. And we have all knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. But he says, but love is what edifies. And so the message there is, listen, the people who have love who are drinking the wine would never criticize anybody who's drinking the grape juice and would never hold themselves up as someone because they're drinking the wine. And the people who are drinking the grape juice would never think they're superior to the people who are drinking the wine. That stuff's all by the law. That stuff is all by the flesh. That stuff's all by humans who like to size themselves up. Love edifies the situation. Knowledge doesn't do it. Love does. So I think he's saying knowing all the angles of an argument can lead to great pride and division as evidenced by this. And to me, I think it's really, really important uh, relative to people who are used to certain cultural lifestyles to be respectful of those lifestyles, whatever they are. They probably had every reason under the sun, the Jewish converts then, to explain why eating meats offered to idols was wrong. They probably could articulate that till sundown. Um, this was the result of long exposure to legalistic thinking that they had in their lives. And in the face of legalistic thinking, you must obey the Sabbath day, you must dress a certain way, you, must, you can't eat certain things. All the laws the Jews were under, 613 by the time Christ walked the earth, tons of laws. It became really easy for them to look down their noses at other people who weren't compliant to those laws, and it became very easy for people who weren't compliant to those laws to mock them for their rigid, uh, conservative approach to living. Neither way is right. Neither way is wrong. That's the point. Love overcomes it all, and you don't care, and you allow everyone to have the liberty because Christ has overcome it all. So. There's an author named Robert Persig, and he tells the story of a, a country church um, that was beloved in a neighborhood, and everybody used to go to it, and they decided to expand and go to another building. And a local bar owner came in and bought the church, and he turns it into uh, you know, a bar, and that there was a huge schism in the community. The church people were like, you can't do that. I was married there. I was baptized there. My children, uh, and we were, and all that stuff. It comes down again to materialism. It comes down to the law. It comes down to uh, attacking over things that are not of the spirit. And so, and, 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 and the idea was, it was a church at the time it functioned as a church. And then when people left it, it just became a building. And this is the, the idea Persig is bringing out when he speaks. And this is what Paul is trying to bring out. It's akin to what's happening here. There are people who place a great deal of meaning on materialistic associations, and there are people who place very little meaning on materialistic associations. This isn't really the issue, because we're all going to do it in different ways. The issue Paul is addressing, how can we get along? I used to really go after Mormons on Sunday when I would be in a public place working like on uh, sermons and I'd be sitting in a public place like a store or a restaurant, fast food restaurant, Carl's Jr. And they come in with their white shirts and ties and their dresses on Sunday. And I used to be a real ass and people loved that. People who really loved to 
go after other people. And I was one of them at one time. And I used to say, Sabbath day, Sabbath day, Sabbath day. And then every now and then one of them would come over and try to explain why they're in there feeling guilty. And my point was, listen, you know, you claim to follow God by his rules. You better live those rules. And you're not doing it now, so you're showing you think you can break them, and it's no problem. That was my point. But it really was me doing what Paul is advising against. It was me having knowledge of Scripture and what it meant, but it wasn't applying that in love to them as they came in the Sabbath day, which was, I, I repent of that. I look back on that uh, with much chagrin. So... He begins by plainly stating that knowing tends to make us proud and who get involved in debates. Remember that when you get online and people start and all the stuff. We all have knowledge, he says. Scribal knowledge of the law was ubiquitous among the Jews. They could, they could say anything. Paul was trying to get them away from that thinking. Knowledge puffs up, has made us proud. We should be careful that it will lead us away with vain um, attitudes toward other people. And he proves the fallibility of knowledge by saying right out of the gates, all have knowledge. We all have opinions of things. Uh, but this didn't stop an issue from developing here. So he addresses it quickly, he says, now it's touching things off to idol. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but charity edifies, and we're presented with a grand rule of the faith, agape love. Agape love translated charity, unfortunately, in the, King's, in the King James. Agape love edifies. Knowledge of things puffs us up. Agape loves edifies. The word edified, uh, oikom amadeo in the Greek, oikom amadeo in the Greek means it builds up. It builds up. And that's a beautiful word. Love builds up. Knowledge can tear down. And so that's why he says it. Such an important vocabulary word to the Christian. Or kamadaeo in the Greek. Real Christian love builds up. Therefore, the rule of thumb, which Paul's going to give in a minute, is whatever action or words build a situation up, and a people involved, that's the attitude you want to take. If it's an action or attitude that divides, splits, a schizomide, a situation or a people, you want to be very careful of how that's used. Remember, you don't want to schizo relationships. You don't want to frenetically tear them. You want to, if you're going to draw a line between things, you want to do it with love, with like an incision, like a surgical incision. Because scripture always uses the surgical incision way of parting ways with people. And that is a very, very exact loving way versus schizoing a relationship, which is only used a couple times. And we've talked about that. We're going to return to the use of this word when it comes to speaking in tongues and spiritual gifts in chapter 12. But for now, let's apply it to the eating of meat offered to idols. Paul continues verse 2, and he says something that really clears the deck here. You ready? And if any person thinks he knows anything, like about the subject of eating meat offered to idols, like the subject of drinking alcohol, like the subject of a Sabbath day, whether you can or cannot go into a Carl's Jr., like the subject of any subject, like the subject of 
people who live together, like the subject of homosexuality in this day and age and, and what's going on, like the subject of anything. If someone thinks they knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know it. That is a radical line. That's saying you can have opinions, you can have facts, you can have data, but if you think you know something, you don't know anything compared to how you ought to know it. And then he says, but, here's the but, if any man loves God, the same is known of him. So you can know all kinds of things, and he says you're missing the point. But anyone who loves God, God knows him. He switches the knowing around there. So what he's saying is, as human beings, we can know everything. And we can have all kinds of knowledge walking about in our lives and, and making assessments and opinions and la, 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 which I've done for many years. But if, if we love God, which is the first great commandment to love God and then love each other, you love God, then God knows you. And that's the, that's the thing he's trying to say. He knows that you are seeking to build up, to, to not tear down, but to build people up. And you'll go a long way uh, in the apostolic church and in the church today. All the knowledge in the world means zilch if it's not accompanied by agape love. If you think you know everything, if you know anything, and you don't have it the right way, you're in trouble. So we know the score when it comes to sacrificial offerings uh, to meat and to idols around here. He says, we know that the idols are not the true and living God. And we know that they are associated with some pretty dark arts. We understand that is all around. And they're, and they're associated with prostitution and sexual depravity associated with blessings. That if you go and have intercourse with a temple prostitute, that it will grant you certain blessings in your life. We know all about those things, and there's some egregious stuff contrary to the laws of God, which the Jews lived under for 1,500 years, and stuff is known. But if you're using your legal stance to reject people, and the, even the food that they're offering, or if you're using your liberty to eat such food, and mocking the Jews for refusing such food, you're failing in your love. You're failing in the ability to equip people up. There's nothing more liberating than to embrace somebody who is living what they think is right as a brother or sister in Christ. Uh, I could have, when those people come into Carl's Jr., said, what's up, brother? How you doing? Sit down. Tell me about the Mormon church. What's going on with the prophet? La, 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 la. No. I hit him with my knowledge of the scripture. Uh, years of doing that. And, you know, and then people around who, with you, yeah, good job, Sean, you know, loving that part. And it's wrong because they're not building up. And I could breach them with love, but I chose to breach them with knowledge. Hopefully grown up from that. So at this point, he begins to lay down his advice as a living, chosen, trained, will die for his witness of Christ person. Remember that. He will die for his witness of Christ. That's the thing that testifies to me of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is that there were 12 men who gave their lives for his, their witness as recorded historically, and they gave their lives separately. They weren't like a band of brothers. They went out and shared, he rose, he rose, we know. He rose from the grave, and all of them were martyred but one. Why do it? That's a great witness to me that Christ rose from the dead, and if Christ rose from the dead, then something that we should look at. So at verse 4, he says, As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, 
We know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is none other God but one. He is saying so much right here to the Jewish convert in his day. An idol, what is it really? What is it? Does it have any power? Does it have any ability? Can an idol create life out of nothing? Can an idol govern a universe? Can an idol change um, a goat to a, a rabbit? Can an idol do anything? No, he says. We know that. Concerning idols, we know this. Can it stop the storming seas? Can it move the North Star? So, no, an idol has nothing in the world, especially when compared to the true and living God. That's the comparison he's making. The whole thing is delusive. It's frankly absurd when you think about it. In my personal opinion, uh, to give fear or to seek the power of an idol is absurdity. And, but I won't pick on someone who's doing it. I will approach them in love. But Paul says there's nothing in the world. If there would, Isaiah points out, you can take a piece of wood. He, he goes, here's the interesting thing about idolatry in the nation of Israel. They take a stump of wood. They cut off the parts of it to make a face. The face can't see. It can't hear. It can't speak. And then they take the chips that they cut it out from, and they warm themselves with it in the fire. Because this, this is the God they worship. And then he says, they become like the idol they're seeking, which is insensate. The, the, the idol they carved out of wood is insensate. It has no senses. So in time, they become without senses. They soon, following that, worshiping that, can't see, can't hear, can't speak. Not literally, but figuratively. That's how Isaiah points out the idiocy of, of pursuing idols that have no power. They're nothing in the world, Paul says. Uh, zero capacity. So... If all I said is true, and they have no capacity, Paul says, they're nothing in the world, they are powerless, they take people's eyes off a living God, and the idols are dead and dumb, then the foods offered to idols are inert. They're nothing. The idols are nothing. The food offered to them is nothing. Meaning they aren't tainted. Meaning eat up. Have a barbecue with it. Don't worry about it, he says, because there's nothing to it, right? Therefore, Paul's advice seems to be there's no danger in partaking of food offered in sacrifice. Forget the false superstitions that we tend to associate with stuff like that. It's very huge in the Christian world. Paul summarizes the point by saying that an idol is nothing in the world. It's an interesting reference or word choice since in the Hebrew, the word for idol is elalem. And uh, the singular is Elel, not Eloi uh, or Eli, but Elel. And it means, the word idol in Hebrew means vain nothingness. So it means a weakness, it means vanity, the Hebrew word, indicating their powerlessness to do any real change. So to provide the opposing view, he adds, as concerning, therefore, the eating of things that are offered and sacrificed unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. That God here in the King James and probably in your uh, uh, Bibles is a capital G. Okay, no other God, capital G, but one. There are no other gods. Ozzy Osbourne, the God of Ra, I always use him because that's what they used to say. Ozzy Osbourne, the God of Rock, is a lowercase g. He's a God, an Elohim, 
he's an alloy of God, of rock, but he's not a capital G of rock. There's no other capital G God in the universe, Paul says. I trust that to be true. And so that one God harkens back to the great Shema of the Jews, as they used to sing and still do, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, is one. There is one. There is no more. There's lowercase, but there's no more. Capital G. Straight up, pure, monotheistic worship of the true and living God. Now that has been practiced by other groups. The Sumerians practiced uh, uh, some types of monotheism, if I understand it right. And other groups have practiced monotheism. I'm going to touch on those in a second. So it's not just a monotheistic God that we're worshiping. We are worshiping the true and living monotheistic God, which separates itself from different monotheistic gods in certain elements, but maybe not in all. And we do see through a glass darkly. All we're saying is, at least in Christianity thus far, we believe in one God. There is one, not more. Okay? So Paul points seems to be, look, we know that there is no power in idols and that there is only one capital G God. Eating meat sacrificed to false, fake, crumbling idols is not going to change him in any way. The stake going down your gullet, like Jesus said, what goes into the mouth doesn't defile a man. It's what comes out of the mouth, what we speak that defiles a person. So if you eat it, be big deal. Eat it. Okay? However, let's not let our understanding and knowledge of all this ride roughshod over our love for others who differ with us on this point. He's going to talk about that. So he says at verse 5, for though there be that are called gods, you notice the King James will put a lowercase g there, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many. Okay, so in the first, in verse 4, he says there's no other God, but it's a capital G. And he means that there's only one. But now he says, seeming to contradict himself, but though there be many that are called gods, both in heaven and in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us, verse 6, and you have to see, is this how you see it? This is what Paul says, I agree with it. It's how I see it. But to us, there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. That's how he differentiates between the one God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. One is the one God the Father of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things, and we by him. And I'll talk about that in a second. So though there be, uh, though there be that that are called gods, he says, now, the King James translators took a liberty here, uh, which I don't think they really could have or should have, but I know they're trying to make it clear. They, they gave capitalization here where there was no capitalization. It's just theos, theos. Though there be many gods, it's theos. And though there be one god, it's theos. But they capitalized to help with understanding, to get Paul's point through. And I think I agree with the capitalization, but just understand it wasn't originally there saying capitalize this god and don't capitalize the other one. Purely the context of this message is telling us what should be capitalized and what should not. Additionally, 
Paul said in verse 4 that in this world idols are nothing. And these words tell us that whatever gods are seen as gods in this world uh, don't deserve the uppercase G. So there's no problem with the liberties that the King James uh, translators took. In verse 5, even though he has said that in the world idols are nothing, he admits that the earth is full of lowercase g gods and lowercase g lords, adding, whether in heaven or in earth, which I interpret whether they be gods that reside in the heavens or gods that reside in the earth, maybe even under the earth. There could be an allusion here to gods of the sun, moon, and stars that was very big, uh, gods of actual gods named by of the sun, moon, and stars when he says heavens instead of gods that are around the one God, you know, a whole panoply of gods. He's talking about heavenly gods that pagan communities would look to. Uh, and, uh, or he might be talking about the Greek gods that lived in heaven or supposedly came down from heaven, Juno and Jupiter and Mercury and others. He could have been talking about either ones when he says whether in heaven or on earth. And when he says on earth, there were uh, earthly gods in Greek mythology and Roman mythology. Um, uh, Cyrus was one and Neptune was one. Neptune, you know, the tri thing. He rode the seas. He was the god of the seas. So they had gods on earth and gods in heaven. Here Paul says a line planted as a parenthetical reference for us that has been used by many of our LDS family and friends to their theological advantage when Paul says, as there be gods many and lords many. And of course, people like our LDS uh, friends will suggest that Paul is admitting to many gods here. And this is pulled from the Old Testament, and that the Old Testament admits that there's many gods. And, uh, but all he seems to really be admitting to is there are deities that human beings have looked to and, uh, and considered gods and lords, but that this isn't the fact, and that's proven by him saying there's only one God with the capital G. Uh, and so I think, of course, this can't be an admission by Paul that there are truly many gods and lords that ought to be worshipped. Uh, which is the LDS view because of their ontology of the Father, God, having a Father, having a Father, having a Father, the eternal regression of gods. And he's saying, that's not what he's saying. He's just saying there are many gods among us and many lords. So, uh, Paul says there's many. I just want to really quickly run you through, just for your information. Gods can be broken down into a few groups. First, there are theists. That's just the general category. If you believe in a God of any kind, you're a theist, okay? And uh, that includes deists who, Thomas Jefferson was a deist, for example. He believes that there is a God, but he doesn't intervene. And Thomas Jefferson, being a deist, did not think Jesus was deity. So he believed there's a God, but he doesn't intervene with the, wor with the world at all. There's dualists under the theist category. And dualists believe that there are uh, typically two gods, one being a good god and one being an evil god. And so they kind of work off each other and opposing natures. Then there's monotheists. Of course, you know that means just one god under the theist category. And then there is what we would call polytheists. And there are many gods in the polytheistic world. Um, and we'll get to some... 
uh, uh, religions that believe that. Then after theists, we have atheists, and they say there's no belief in God at all. So I'm going to read you a few names of different religions, because Paul here says there are many gods and many lords uh, throughout. We all know that. So I just want to just touch on, I have a list of about 30, but I'm just going to give you, I'm sorry I'm sweating so much, but one, I'm sick, and two, it's hotter than, than the non-hell in here. Will you open that door? Thanks. Okay. I'll just throw out some names to you, and you, this is rhetorical. You think in your minds, are they deists, dualists, monotheists, or polytheists, or are they atheists? Okay? Uh, Amish, well, they're monotheists. Um, I'm not going to cover uh, groups like ancestor worship or animism, uh, but uh, the Om Shikrino, that was a cult group in Japan. You may remember when they took the, um, the poison on the subways? They were Christian, and they were a monotheist Christian group that was infiltrated by a bunch of other crazy ideas. The Baha'i faith, what do you think? Monotheistic, they believe in one God. Is it the same God as Christians? I think in many ways, probably. Uh, Branch Davidians, they were theists. Yeah, that's all they considered themselves, theists. Here's a tough one, Buddhism. Buddhism is atheist. Buddhism is atheist. If you ask a, Bo a Buddhist who really knows their stuff, they are atheists. I'm not picking on them. Those are facts. They are atheists. They don't believe in God. They believe in a lot of other things, some of that very good, but they don't believe in God. That was interesting to me. Uh, Christadelphians. That's American-made religion, uh, much of which I really do like. They're monotheists. Uh, Christianity, of course, monotheistic. Uh, let's see. Ekankar, monotheistic. Gnosticism, Hare Krishna, both polytheistic. It means they believe in many gods. Now, you might say, well, what about Mormonism? What does Mormonism believe? Mormonism is probably what they call henotheistic. And what that means is they believe there are many gods, but there's only one God that we have to do with. And that is why Christians will often say we don't worship the same God as they do because they're henotheistic in their ideas that there have been many gods, there will be many more gods, we can become gods, uh, but uh, they're not strictly polytheistic because polytheistic uh, worshipers worship many gods at the same time, where we know that the Mormons don't do that. Hindu the Hindus are, uh, are uh, polytheistic. Uh, let's see if there's any other interesting ones here. People's Temple. That was good old, what's his name? Killed everybody over in Guyana. He was monotheistic and started as a Christian cult. Uh, Unitarianism is monotheistic, strictly monotheistic. Wicca is dualistic. Uh, you've heard of Wiccan uh, witches and things? They're dualistic. They think that there's a good and that there's an evil. And the way they, they describe that is interesting. Uh, Taoism is atheistic. So there, there's just some I just thought I would share with you of the gods many. So, and we know that it doesn't just uh, deal with those type of heavenly influence gods perspective we're talking about. It deals with everything. People will say, in our day and age, they loosely say, he is a god. Oh, he's a god, you know. They say that. And that uh, also lends to uh, Paul and what he's saying. But he also says there are lords many. 
So are those words interchangeable, God and Lord? There are God's many and Lord's many. Why does Paul differentiate by saying there are two? And, I mean, when you think of it, why don't we say, why do we say the Lord is my shepherd? How come we don't say God is my shepherd? There are uses of the word God here that are different than Lord. And why does Paul seem to differentiate between them? First of all, Paul is speaking about lowercase gods and lowercase lords here, which are many. And, and I've just listed some of them. But lords, there are even more. And the reason I say this is because, generally speaking, the term God is the focal point or focus of our whole adoration and, the, and, and worship of that being where lords are the ones we serve and obey. Now, people would say we serve God. That's true. But truly, lords are the ones who are like directly over us and we obey them. And gods are the ones we focus on and say, my God. My, uh, my trust is in you. So we have something going on here with all that explanation with Jesus and the Father. And that starts to get uh, a little bit interesting. So we recognize the phrase that he or she is lording over my life. Oh, God, that's hard. They're lording over me. And in some ways, gods are the supreme source while lords might be whittled down to those we are forced or want to serve. It's just like Bob Dylan, you know, you're going to serve somebody. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. That's Lord uh, in the case of Scripture more often than not. And that's why the term Lord in the Bible is often referring to magistrates or kings and not to Jesus or God the Father. It's referring to human beings. Even Jesus says that there are Lords many. And what he's talking about, and when scripture talks about lords and even gods, both of those terms can be used to describe human beings over certain things in our lives. And when you get that mixed up, you start to think and apply it only to heavenly things, and it's just not true with scripture. The word Lord, capital L-O-R-D, but printed smaller in scripture, all caps but printed smaller, is in the Hebrew the, what's called the Tetragrammaton, and it is four letters that the Jews wrote to describe God's personal name. And we call him Yahweh. Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. So whenever they saw Yahweh, the King James translators wrote Lord, L-O-R-D, uppercase shrunk. And so people think it's, it's really uh, sacrilegious to say they're a god, Ozzy Osbourne's the God of Rock. He's the Elohim of Rock. That's just a title. He, he might be the Elohim of Rock. I personally think other bands are, but Ozzy may be the God of Rock, Elohim of Rock. But if I was to say he is the Yahweh of Rock, that is blasphemous through and through because Yahweh is God's personal name. That's what his name is, Y-H-W-H, and we don't even know how to pronounce it. And the Jews wouldn't even pronounce it. They wouldn't give it a vowel uh, uh, symbols because they didn't want to say it. So they gave a representation of what his name was through four letters called the Tetragrammaton. So when it comes to the true and living God, capital G, his name is not Elohim. That is the title of any God. His name is not Lord or Adonai because that are, those are names for Lord in the Hebrew. His name is Yahweh, and that's how we even pronounce it. We're not really even sure.
if that's true. And just to let you know, uh, when the Hebrews translated Lord, uh, in capital L, small, lowercase o-r-d, that is usually taken from that word Adonai, and, or Adonai, and it means the one who is the master, the one who is the authority in charge, and it can be tr uh, uh, switched with sir. That's why we have people calling different people in Scripture Lord, and all it means is sir. It doesn't have the implication of capital L-O-R-D. L-O-R-D, L, capital O-R-D, smaller, is just like sir. All right. So I'm not going to differentiate between the two at the moment. Not to suggest that Jesus, listen closely, not to suggest that Jesus was not God with us. Scripture tells us that. I believe that. But we have to really be careful on how we're assessing that when we speak. Uh, the point, we got to point out in Scripture, Jesus is most frequently described as Lord and Savior, with his Father being described as God. And so using the Scripture, that is how we're going to move forward in seeing this. Again, they can be and have been used interchangeably, but there are some nuanced senses that will help us grow in our knowledge of the two of them because to know them is life eternal, to know the true and living God and his son whom he sent. That's what scripture says. We want to know them. And so I'm not going to just go with this the, uh, history and, and just repeat it to you because that's what's been established by men. I'm going to take the Bible and talk to you from what the Bible says, okay? Paul right here makes it really clear. He says here plainly, and we've read it, but to us, ready, there is but one God. He says it. The Father. He says it. That's what Paul says. And there are many other passages to support this. So I want to start with that premise. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Paul says there is one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. So I just want to talk about that. When the word of God, God's words, became flesh and dwelled among us, they dwelled in God's only human son. Jesus of Nazareth, born of a woman, born under the law. What was in the baby Jesus of Nazareth in the manger? The word of God fully. It was God with us in the man Jesus of Nazareth. Keep that in mind when you start to look at those two between the one God and Jesus, that he was a fully man and he had fully God in him, okay? He was called Emmanuel, which interpreted as God with us. But the with us part was all human in the flesh, in the arteries, in the mind, in the hand, completely human. And therefore, that representation part of him was not God. And this can get a bit confusing. So I just want to wrap this up and just take a little bit on this subject. One, because it's not easy. So it needs to be examined and re-examined and re-talked about. And because to know the true God and his son whom he has sent is life eternal. That's the words of Jesus. 
to have relationship to know them. And it seems to me that it's very important to know them. And so the knowing them personally over all the other lowercase gods and lowercase lords in heaven and in earth has great purpose and meaning in our lives. So I challenge you to challenge every word I bring out. I challenge you to to test everything I say by the Spirit and by the Word of God. And I challenge you to, to question these things because they're not easy. You've seen me on this very stage debating one of the world's great debaters on the Trinity, uh, James White, for three hours going at it. And uh, yeah, he has his points and they're great points. But I had mine and the world's greatest expert wasn't really getting that far, in my opinion, with the things we don't clearly see. So I'm just going to talk about it quickly. After saying all that Paul has said thus far in chapter chapter 8 about gods and lords, he gives us verse 6, which is so plain. And it is corroborated by many other passages, like the great Shema, and escapes manipulation. He does this by saying there is one God, and he adds. If he just said there's one God, the people who push the Trinity out could say, we agree with that. But he says there is one God, the Father. That's how he puts it. And that means something to me. That says something to me that's very important. So he's admitted that there's all sorts of gods and lords, but he says, but to us, those who are Christians by faith, and what I would suggest means here too, but to us here, there is but one God, one Father, the Father, of whom are all things, and we uh, in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. You see how he differentiates between them in those two little explanations? From whom and through whom, did you catch those distinctions? From whom and through whom, okay? So all things did not come from Jesus, the man born in Nazareth. All things came from the one God, Paul tells us there. The Father. But all things to a Christian, sorry for the way I said that, come through Jesus, God's only Son. Not by, but through. They do not come through God directly to us. Notice that. But through his only human Son. That's why Paul differentiates between those two terms. Really important. God is the from source. God is the from source. Jesus is the through source. And that's what Paul is explaining here in that passage. Life came from God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Light comes from God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Love came to earth from God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that is how we have a one God, one Lord situation relative to us human beings. Everything comes from God. Through. Everything comes through his only human son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Get that down in your mind and you'll have to start to get a better understanding of who they are. We get ourselves all muddied up when we start messing around with this well-established order by reordering all of this to make the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit one and then just start saying, it's him, it's them, it's the, we pray, that, and, it, and, and you just do it. But from is God, through is Christ. Uh, of and from, by and through. 
Now, again, I reiterate that God was in the man Jesus, reconciling the world, whole world to himself through his son. Through his son. God, through his son, reconciled the whole world to himself. That's why as Christians we hold the son up in such adoration and worship. That's why I have that on my hand. That's why I preach Jesus, because our access to the one God is through the Son. God loved us so much, He gave His only begotten Son. It's through the Son that we get to God, who was full of God when He walked the earth. Really important to examine the human side of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Very important. Why do we call him our Lord and Savior? Because he was one of us. He was one of us. Jesus sitting here, kicking back with us, if he hadn't died and resurrected and and all that stuff, but he was in his ministry, at one point he would say, I got to go to the bathroom. At one point he'd say, can I have some water? At one point he might say, this is getting me a little bit angry. At one point, he can say to a group of people, you know, I was tempted in that. Because he was us. We, we, when we say he's God, without qualifying that in the context of what I'm qualifying, we miss so much about him being us. And having been us, condescending below all things, taking on the law himself that the Jews followed for 1,500 years, 613, 31 commandments and living it perfectly and dying, shedding his blood for us, he becomes the one through whom we gain access to the God, to the father. So I want to wrap today up by pointing out some unique distinguishing elements about God, the father and our Lord Jesus Christ, just to help you understand why scripture always refers to Jesus as the son of God and never God, the son always son of God. Okay? We know if you believe in scripture, God is all wise, all knowing. Jesus grew in wisdom and he learned obedience by and through the things he suffered. That's the man from Nazareth. That's the man. Uh, Hebrews 5 talks about that. Luke talks about that. Number two, God has limitless knowledge and, uh, in terms of everything that goes on. And Jesus had, had limited knowledge. Uh, Mark 13, uh, 32 says it. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. God has all knowledge. If he didn't, he could be surprised. And if he could be surprised, he could be tricked. And if he could be tricked, he could be fooled and lose and fail. So we say he has those three O's. He's omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. Because in the presence of those things, he cannot fail. If you remove any of those, he can fail. And so they've established this idea. He knows all and is all powerful and is everywhere. That is God and scripture sustains that. Well, the son didn't have that. So because he didn't know everything as pointed out by Mark 13:32. Plus he was growing. Three, God is and always has been perfect. Jesus needed to, listen, he needed to allow his fullness of God in him to guide his body, his fleshly body that we all share, to perfection. He could have sinned, 
but he had God with him fully. He could have chosen wrong, but he had God with him fully. He overcame our flesh for us. Hebrews 2.10 says, In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. You know what that says? It says that God took his only human son, born in a manger, and he said, I'm, I am in you fully. My words are in you, and, but you need to suffer to learn everything. And so he is the author of our salvation by his suffering. Suffering how? By his suffering to not grab the neighbor's wife. By his suffering to not steal. By his suffering to not call down angels to wipe out people who are ticking him off. All of that stuff. He took our, his flesh that we share, and he said, I'm going to overcome this flesh for them. Number four, Jesus received the Holy Spirit at his baptism, and God was pleased with him as his human son. Mark 1, 9 through 11. And at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Jesus was coming up out of the water. He saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. So Jesus could please his Father. The fact that he could please him means he could have disappointed him. That puts him in the same shoes that we walk in. God cannot be tempted. It's impossible to tempt God. Jesus was tempted in everything. In James 1.13, James writes, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Clear, he cannot be tempted. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who is, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have a high priest who was tempted in every way just as we are yet without sin. In his flesh, he was tempted. That is part of what makes him Jesus. God cannot be tempted. So looking at his human side, we have to understand the magnitude of what he went through on our behalf. God does not need to be strengthened. There's no angels that God has created that are to come and strengthen him. But Jesus was strengthened in the garden. You remember that? When God sent angels to support him and strengthen him during that trial, God cannot die. <laughs> Scripture tells us that God is immortal. He is not subject to death. Jesus died. What was in him didn't die, but he offered up himself as a physical representation of a federal head of the whole physical world to die. That makes him us filled with God. Remember that. Remember, Jesus said in, in uh, Revelation 1.18, I am he that lives and was dead. He says that. And behold, I am alive forevermore. That's why we have him as Lord and Savior. He's, the, he's our master. Through him, we too live forevermore. That's why he did what he did. Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. Now, this is going to really bother some people who are don't like this um, because we have the same father as he does as humans as humans understand the bible teaches that we are brothers of jesus we don't hear that in christianity because mormonism teaches that in a spiritual sense we are not spiritual brothers with jesus 
what was in him was God. That is not what we're, uh, that's not how we're related to him. We are fleshly brothers and sisters of Jesus. That's why he could call us brothers. So, of course, this refers to the brotherhood and sisterhood of man, which Jesus what? Was Hebrews 2, 10 and 11. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through everything exists, should make to the author of their salvation, perfect through suffering, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. That's in the scripture. He is our brother of flesh. Difference, again, LDS, spirit brother. No, 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 no. Not according to the Bible. Fleshly brother, though. And he's not ashamed to call those of us who are in the family of God, his brothers and sisters, who in their flesh also let God in them die and rise to new life. That's how it's taught. Number 10, scripture says that God is spirit, yet even after his resurrection, Jesus differentiated in that. Do you remember? In John 4, uh, 23, it says God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. But Luke 24, Jesus says, Behold my hands and feet, it is I myself, handle me and see me, for a spirit has not flesh and bones as you see me have. God is spirit. Jesus says a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see me have. What's the implication there? Put it together for your salvation and the way you follow him. Uh, two more. The Bible says that God is not a man. But Jesus is very plainly called a man many times in Scripture. The apostles in the book of Acts, they always in preaching, every time in preaching, the apostles say, the man Jesus of Nazareth, the man Jesus of Nazareth, constantly in their preaching. Important to remember that element about his physicality. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. John 8, 39, 40 <coughs> I'll just, I'm going to read, uh, I'm not going to read John 38, 9, 40 because it's too long to explain. <coughs> Sorry. But in Acts 2, 22, it says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God. That is how a living apostle described him. So when you meet somebody who is ardent, that Jesus was God, Jesus was God, Jesus was God. You could say, I appreciate that. And I think he was God with us. Absolutely. But I think you're kind of overestimating some things here, which tend to take away from what he did. And that's what creeds will do to us when we embrace them, like the Trinity. It's just a working title to use because we don't want to think anymore. I'm not against it. I agree with it in terms of many of its elements. But when we just throw it all together like that so we don't have to think and seek God in spirit and in truth, we lose stuff in translation. And this is an important part that we've lost. 1 Timothy 2.5, Paul says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. That's how he puts it. I do not see it blasphemous to preach Jesus this way today. Finally, Jesus is called the Son of God, more than 50 times in the Bible, not once, like I pointed out, is he ever called God the Son. And, but God the Father is called God the Father. And I think that would be uh, made clear in the New and Old Testament. So I suggest that Paul has it right here in verse 6 when he says, But to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord, 
Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Let's stop there. Questions, comments, insights, Vanna White. Someone bring a hose and hose me down. What up? Come on, you guys. Someone's got to have a comment. It's there in you. Some criticism. Some supportive thing to say. Jonathan. Hi, Sean. This is Jonathan. Uh, great message today. Wow. Praise God. I just have to say, wow. All glory to the Lord. Um, I just wanted to share uh, another verse that I happened to open today in the Holy Bible, in the Bible app, the YouVersion app. Uh, it's 1 Samuel 2, verse 2. And it says, There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee. Neither is there any rock like our God. It just reminded me that, you know, kind of go- coincides another supporting verse of the, the only God. Appreciate it. Thank you, brother. Much better looking Ken just walked up. Anything else? Oh, Danny. Yeah, that was amazing explanation, I think, that you gave. Um, So I was thinking about John 6, 44, where... He says, no one, this is Jesus speaking, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. So, um, no one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him. So, it's the Father working through the Christ that draws us to him. Who's pulling us to his son. Yeah, great point. Anything else? All right, you had your chance. Now, if you want days off work, come kiss me on the mouth. And I guarantee you in four days you'll have it. All right, let's, uh, let's pray over the people on our list and get out of here. Lord, we're grateful for your word and the spirit that is, uh, accompanies it. We pray that we'll learn and uh, seek you. We pray that our hearts and ears and eyes will be open to what you want us to know. Forgive the things that I said that are errant. Surely there's things in there. We're just ambling forth the best of our ability. But we pray that you will renew our hearts and minds and that if there is anybody in the sound of my voice who's watching at home or wherever that doesn't know you, that they will, uh, that they will come to you personally, privately, and that they will offer themselves up and, and offer their life to you and ask you to reveal um, yourself in them and that you'll show yourself and you'll make yourself known and you'll give new life. And uh, that is what you do. You fix broken things. You heal. You give life. You bring light. There's no fear in having you in us, Lord. And we just pray that uh, we can all abide and walk in that love and light that you give. Help us, Lord, to exit here as better Christians. And the way that's defined by everything that we read in Scripture is that we love others. And that is the love that's defined in 1 Corinthians 13. It's not, it's not the kind of love that, we, that uh, feeds the flesh. It's the kind of love that dies to the flesh, that's humble and patient and kind and long-suffering and generous and, and all those things that you were when you walked here among us. 
So we just pray for those things. We pray for those people who can't be with us, who are watching and want to be, people who are sick. We pray for Lisa and her continued healing of her cancer. Pray for uh, Carla and healing of her uh, body and her sister Diana and the operation she's had and, uh, and the nursing home and things like that. I pray for my dad who was just put in uh, uh, hospital care last night and that you'll help his, uh, his uh, kidney failure and all the stuff that goes on with getting old and uh, you'll help him to know that he's loved and appreciated and, and, and bless him and my mom. I pray that you'll bless uh, Annette uh, new treatments for, for cancer, especially on the spine. Mike recovering from a brain bleed and recovery, short-term memory. Robert, cancer of his kidneys and upcoming surgery as well as chemo for lymphoma. Pray for Phyllis for pancreatic recovery and for Diane and kidney stones and tomorrow's scope that she has. And Lord, we uh, just lift everybody up here who uh, has issues, and that's most of us, whose names aren't written, but you know what they are. And we pray that by your spirit, you will come in and speak to us and you'll lead us and you'll inspire us and you'll help us to uh, do what you want us to do, not what men want us to do, but what you want us to do. So let's go out into this rest of this week being free, being used by you in whatever ways you want. And we love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.